You sisters know that my skin has been glowing lately. And I'm here to tell you my secret. Oak Essentials. You've heard us talk about their line of luxurious products before, and we're so excited to have them as a sponsor of OK Sister Podcast because now you can join in on the glowy goodness. You know Oak Essentials is legit because it was created by none other than our favorite brand ever, Jenny Kane. Oak Essentials is known for its simple approach to self-care with a lineup of foundational skincare staples made with high-quality ingredients that drive results. It aims to unlock healthy, glowing skin with decadent and hydrating ingredients that give you a luxe, dewy glow. I won't shut up about the Moisture Rich Balm. It's a nutrient-rich balm that supports collagen production and delivers serious hydration for a luminous glow. And a luminous glow indeed. The way my skin feels like butter after applying this balm. This balm will make you never want to wear makeup again. And you can apply generously during your night routine to lock in moisture as you dream. It's the definition of beauty sleep. Treat yourself or someone else this season. You sisters will get 15% off and a free organic honey-based restorative mask with their first order. Oh my God, what a deal. When you use code OKSIS15 at checkout. That's right. 15% off plus a gift with your first order at O-A-K-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L-S.com. Promo code OKSIS15, OKAYSIS15. Go ahead and treat yourself. From luxurious skincare to meaningful self care, you deserve it. Welcome to OK Sis Podcast. Hi, sisters. I'm Maddie. And I'm Scout. And we are sisters IRL. I'm the older one. Yes, Scout. We know. We're cultural observers. And of curious minds. Get ready for sisterly banter while we chat about fixations, learnings, and personal growth. We promise it'll be a good time. As long as you don't get too loud, Mads. Welcome to the sisterhood. Hi, sisters. Scout here. And just Scout because today is this month's installment of mental health chats and I have quite the episode for you. I brought on Sadie Sutton. She is the host of She Persisted podcast, which I was a guest on. I will link that episode in the show notes so you guys can go listen to me on her podcast. And Sadie and I met a year ago. She invited me to be on her podcast. And as we started chatting, I recognized how special of a woman Sadie is. First of all, she is fuck, I'm totally going to fuck this up. I believe 19 years old, she says in this episode. She is someone who lives with mental illness, has had mental health problems, and actually went into treatment as a teenager in high school. And what attracted me so significantly to her story is not only did she go through treatment so young, but that she did even she even went through treatment. I think so many times for people with mental illnesses or people that have mental health problems, we aren't aware that there are options for us to go somewhere and get full support that we need. So this is definitely an episode, even if you don't have a mental illness, I thought it was so, so important to talk to someone who is so young. First of all, you guys are going to be so impressed by the way she carries herself and talks about her story. 
not only being as young as she is, but really to hear how confident and secure and strong she is because she took radical action over her mental health. So I know that most of us listening to this episode don't need to go check in necessarily to a treatment program, but I thought it was so important to share Sadie's story because it shows the proof of what happens when you significantly commit to your mental health, when you significantly significantly commit to uncovering those limiting beliefs, those negative toxic patterns, when you commit to doing the work. So whether or not you are dealing with a mental illness or you are a human being on this beautiful planet navigating the depths and the waters, the valleys and the peaks of your mental health, this episode and Sadie in particular is such proof that when you do the work on yourself, you see insurmountable rewards. So Sadie is someone that I so significantly look up to. Guys, sisters, keep an eye on her. And I really hope you enjoy this episode. If you are interested, go check out Sadie's podcast, She Persisted Podcast. Again, I'll link in the show notes our episode together. And you can follow Sadie on Instagram at She Persisted Podcast. I love you all, sisters, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, beautiful. Hi. It's good to talk to you again. I know. I know. Okay, so there's so much that I want to, I suppose, set the sisterhood up as to why you and I are chatting. First, obviously, we're going to have a Scout Mental Health chat. Yes. Um, But you reached out to me, was it last year for me to be on your podcast? It was, I think, almost exactly a year ago, which is crazy. Okay, and can you tell everybody how old you are? I just turned 18 in March and graduated high school like last week. <laughs> oh my God. I I have to start with that. Like not that, you know, if you were my age, which is mm-hmm. currently 29 and you came to me with who you were, I would be impressed as is. Yeah. But I remember going on your podcast to talk about mental health and it was, and I was so impressed by you. One, I have never fucking met a (laughs) high schooler who has taken not only such ownership and control over their mental health, but also has the backing of formal treatment, formal therapeutic models and knowledge about things like CBT. And okay, so I was super blown away. And then you reached out to come on OK Sis. And I was like, Sadie, you have to come on my (laughs) mental health chats. You, I I can keep raving. You are phenomenal. And I am so excited to see where you are in five years. Me too. uh, (laughs) Because you're already on a track. Okay, but the sisterhood did not come here to listen to me just rave about (laughs) who you are as a beautiful woman. Can you, real quick, before we get into it, because I really do want to talk about the treatment side of mental health. Can you share a little bit about your experience because your story is such a unique one? Totally. So when I was thinking about what I was going to kind of boil it down to the bullet points and kind of condense my experience, um, I think a lot of it goes down to belief systems, which I'm sure you can relate to as well. And so when I was a teenager, whether like 13, 14, middle school, I lived my entire life through the lens that I wasn't deserving of love, I wasn't going to be good enough for my parents, and that I was 
destined to feel the way that I was feeling forever. And I didn't recognize what I was feeling as depression or anxiety because I didn't enter treatment until a couple months or a year later. But for me, every day was just filled with guilt and shame and loneliness and isolation and all of these things that I thought were normal. And I think that's something that's really unique to adolescent mental health struggles is that you've already kind of almost forgotten so much of your life. So your emotional experience is amplified. Um, you're not fully developed um, cognitively. So your emotions are stronger as you're going through puberty. So like all of these things are a perfect storm to feel completely overwhelmed and like your life is not going to change. And so I was just navigating the world through these lenses that I wasn't good enough for anyone. I didn't deserve love or care or relationships, and I was going to be depressed forever. And that's a really sad thing for a 13-year-old to think, that the next 60 years of their life was was meant to look like their worst day every single day. And so I struggled a lot with depression. That was kind of the core issue for me. And then I had some different presentations of anxiety and OCD and eating disorder stuff. But the root of it was really that depression and those belief systems. And so I struggled for two years or so with severe depression before I started doing treatment, which we'll dive into, of course. Um, but it, as a teen, it manifested in so many different ways, whether that was just completely isolating from my parents, my family members, cutting off friendships, struggling with self-harm, suicidal ideation, all of these things which a lot of teenagers don't deal with or aren't feeling these emotions on such a magnitude. And I kept going back to the, the concept that I hadn't experienced any big traumas. I hadn't gone through any changes when I started to be depressed. And so I was like, there's no reason why this should be happening to me. Like, I'm not even deserving of feeling depressed because nothing's happened. Like, this belief system was just a total mess. And I think it just really speaks to how anyone can be affected by mental health and things like depression. Um, and it's so biological how intensely we feel our emotions and how sensitive we are because me as a 13 year old was like the world is ending I'm so alone I'm so depressed forever and I was living a life that most people were like okay that's pretty normal but for me I was just so overly sensitive and so in tune to these interactions that I was looking through for evidence that I was not good enough and not deserving. There's so many things that you said one, I'm just picturing myself as an 18-year-old um, stealing vodka from <laughs> my parents and getting drunk, definitely not speaking the way you are, which is, I think, something that the next generation is really going to start doing, yeah. which is talking about their belief system. And something that you said that rings true so much in my life, and when I was that old, you know, I had my first depressive episode at 14, mm -hmm. and on paper... With everything, my life was perfect. I was going to private school. I had a loving family. There was yeah. no abuse. There was no quote-unquote intense trauma, which Dr. Nicola Perez says that we all experience trauma. Trauma mm -hmm. is on a very, you know, it doesn't have to look like it's something a continuum, so... totally. Yeah, something mm -hmm. so shocking. Um, but you said something about not deserving of being depressed. So here you were thinking you weren't deserving of the good things, and then you were also feeling like you weren't being deserving of being depressed. Yeah. And that's something that I think so many people with mental health and mental illness experience is they're like, well, my life is great. I don't need to feel this way. Mm -hmm. But it's such a, I suppose, evidence that in the chemical biological space, sometimes life can be on paper super, super great, yet our internal worlds are totally going crazy. So... Mm -hmm. Let's also, you said like life not changing, destined to live that way forever. That's, I think, that belief system, that belief, I think is what keeps everybody in the thick of their mental yeah. health, their mental health problems, which mm -hmm. 
my mom would always say to me when I was depressed, she's like, it'll go away. But I said, but it'll come back. And so that was the wrong mindset. And, you know, this too shall pass that could resonate with you or not. What resonates mostly for me is the poet Rilke's uh, quote, which says, no feeling is final. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's so you're in this state. Yeah. Clearly, you're talking about it now from a very self-aware perspective. What was the awareness there at all? Or was it just this complete buffoonery of I'm fucking depressed? It was blame. It was blame to my parents for raising Mm. me to be the way that I was. I was so young that I hadn't experienced that much of the world. I was like, this must be their fault. Um, I completely believed that the way I was feeling was a direct result of our interactions. And um, I think that furthered my own depression because then I would go into these interactions and be like, if they don't react in this exact way, this means they don't love me and they don't care that I'm struggling and they're not mind readers. Of course they wouldn't react in that way. And so this cycles just continued. So it was partially blame. It was just major feelings of being overwhelmed. Um, these emotions are constant. They're so heavy. They take over your entire life to the point where you're not able to function and do anything else. Like your number one goal is just trying to be stable, get through the day um, and and be in control of your emotions. So there was no self-awareness. There was no understanding of the belief systems. It was just that I was feeling this terrible thing that must have been someone's fault, not mine, and it would never go away. And it that that those feelings, they add up over time. At first it was like, okay, I'll live this way for the rest of my life. And it got to the point where it was like, well, I don't want this rest of this life. This is terrible. And so it, there was no self-awareness there. There was no understanding of the nuances of what goes into one's mental health or the fact that anyone, including teenagers who are living with their parents and have minimal control, um, anyone can, can make changes and truly shift their mental health. So let's talk about the treatment part of this all, because when I heard your story, just when I was on your podcast, you shared briefly that you went somewhere for mm-hmm. treatment. Yes. And I want you to talk about that experience, because when you said it, I remember my problem with getting well and better and the fact that my healing took so many years is because I kept saying, well, there's nowhere for me to go. You know, you're an alcoholic, you go to rehab. Mm -hmm. I don't know where to go. There's no place for people like me to just go unless it's this terrible inpatient program. So Mm -hmm. when you said that your parents sent you somewhere, you know, one, I said a prayer and a blessing and a thanks to your parents for having the foresight to intervene in that level, right? So Mm -hmm. I know someone in my life who is, you know, younger family member and and I was asked, "What, what should we do with her? And I said, put her somewhere. Yeah. send her to treatment Mm -hmm. I wish when I was 18 or 19 and my world was being turned upside down that someone said stop everything and go to treatment but unfortunately those treatments for mental health specifically aren't as common they're not as widespread as places like rehab so that was why I was so intrigued with your story also to prove that treatment does work and that it is out there so can you talk about the decision that either you made or your parents made to go to treatment and what your experience at that place was. Mm -hmm. Ever since having a baby, I've been extremely conscious about what I spend my money on and which products I use. And clothing is no different. I want my wardrobe to be sustainable, good quality, and timeless. You have to be talking about Whimsy and Roe, right? Whimsy and Roe is an LA-grown eco-conscious brand born out of the love for cute, comfy, and classic styles. 
Every piece is made by women for women. Quality goods, local production, natural and organic fabrics. Yes, please give me all the linens. Just like OK Sister, Whimsy and Row is based on the idea that women are multidimensional. There's a balance of flirty feminine and minimal masculine in all of our wardrobes, and Whimsy and Row means exactly that. From special occasions to everyday effortless styles, their clothing is meant to mix and match and wear on repeat. I have been wearing their Kira pant in black linen probably three times a week. Sisters, if you've been listening to this podcast or following me on Instagram, you know that Whimsy and Rose Kira Pant in Black Linen is a sisterhood staple at this point. Founder Rachel Temko created the brand back in 2014 because she wanted to create an approachable and inclusive brand that cared for the people and the planet first. Get the full Whimsy experience IRL at their Venice location or shop online at whimsyandrow.com. Their store in Venice is so cute. I can attest. And if you're in LA, I highly recommend stopping by. They are always putting on these amazing community events. They just launched their spring summer collection and we will be living in it all summer long. Visit their website, whimsyandrow.com. That's W-H-I-M-S-Y-A-N-D-R-O-W.com and use code OKSISTER for 15% off. Sisters, my goal these days is to always look put together when I leave the house. Nothing over the top or super dressed up or anything like that. I just want to look put together and feel good about what I'm wearing in an effortless yet refined way. When I look at my closet every single morning and think about what I can wear that is chic and intentional, I usually end up grabbing one of my Jenny Kane sweaters and I always end up loving the way I look and the way I feel in them. You all know, sisters, that when I envision my highest self, I am wearing Jenny Kane. Their sweaters are the quintessential must-have item. I cannot stop wearing my Marina set. I throw it on and immediately feel like I'm in a Nancy Myers movie. Like I could just walk on the beach in Santa Barbara. It is the coastal grandma aesthetic. My favorite Jenny Kane sweater right now is their everyday sweater in taupe. This is the definition of a staple that every woman must have in their wardrobe. Sisters, trust me on this one. I wear it with leggings, oversized jeans and a little kitten heel or a silk maxi skirt. Legit, Mads and I are so obsessed with wearing our Johnny Kane sweaters that we've literally shown up both wearing the same sweater once, the white alpaca cocoon crew neck, which is this deliciously oversized sweater. Yeah, that moment takes the cake. Both of us walking in with our matching Jenny Kane sweaters. We're obsessed. Can't take them off. Wearing them every day. The type of staples that save your outfit. That is what I love about their entire collection. It is truly the art of simplicity. They focus on comfort, quality, and timeless designs. So you can curate a wardrobe that never goes out of style. Find your new uniform at JennyKane.com. Our listeners get 15% off your first order when you use code OKSIS at checkout. That's 15% off your first order, J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com, promo code OKSIS. O-K-A-Y-S-I-S. Let getting dressed be one less thing to worry about. So I really liked what you said about how I dropped everything, right? And had I gone on struggling, which who knows if I would have made it to this point if I was still just continuing my life as is, the ability to drop everything and not have long-term consequences kind of gets like it decreases as you get older. I went to treatment um, during my freshman year and was able to continue 
completely be on track as far as high school, graduate, get into a good college. And so my life was minimally affected, even though I dropped everything for a year and a half. As you get older and you're working and you're financially independent, like that becomes a lot more difficult. And so I want to first kind of like identify the fact that not everyone can be like, yep, next year and a half of my life is going to be. But I will, I will, I will interject there and say that I think that's a limiting belief that people think because Mm -hmm. I think that if you do get to the age, let's say, of 35 and you have a family and a career and your mental health is debilitating so much and you say to yourself, well, I can't take the year and a half, guess what? The rest of your life's done. So you either take the year and a half and get better and figure it out. Mm -hmm. But yes, 100%, it is so much easier for someone who's in high school to take that time off. Mm -hmm. But if you are listening to this, like, I don't care how long it takes or how many years it sheds off your career stopping your life to focus on healing will improve the long term so much more significantly and when you're kind of looking at long-term treatment you're in crisis mode like that is like one of the only options so it's not like oh it would be nice to go and sit on a beach for six months and meditate it's like you got to do something at this point things are falling apart so I, to preface before I went to treatment, I tried everything you can imagine locally. I did inpatient hospitalization stays. I did outpatient programs. I did outpatient DBT, partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient programs, individual therapy, family therapy, group therapy, you name it, I tried it. Like we were expending every single resource locally. I was driving down to Stanford three times a week for treatment. Like things were not working on in the trajectory that I was heading, I needed more support. I needed to kind of remove myself from my environment so that I could change things myself and then re-enter and be able to cope. And I think that's something that's true for a lot of people. When you're in an environment that you're seeing is invalidating or these interactions are reinforcing these beliefs, making significant changes to those belief systems or those relationships is really difficult when you're just still in that, stuck in that environment. So I was halfway through my freshman year when I was kind of told that I was going to be going to a residential program. And I it was kind of brought to me as like, there aren't any more options. You can't go back to this old program. You've just been in the hospital with a suicide attempt. This is your fourth hospital stay in 12 months. There, There's nothing else that we can do. You have to go somewhere. And so my parents, God bless them, they searched for the best program in the country. And they found this program called Three East at McLean Hospital. And so McLean Hospital is the number one psychiatric hospital in the country. They're a Harvard Medical School affiliated program. They're the forefront of all of the kind of psych research that's going on. And so they have this amazing program for both adolescent girls and boys. It's two separate ones where they focus on something called DBT, which stands for Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. And my parents latched onto this because of the clinical studies, especially in adolescence. When you're doing something like talk therapy or you're going to group therapy, you'll see changes, meaningful changes. But with DBT, it's a super intensive by the book treatment, what you're learning skills, you're doing group therapy, you're working through these systematic different um, modules. And so the you clinically are going to decrease in levels of depression, suicidal ideation, self-harm urges. And there's overwhelming evidence for that, regardless of where you're doing it, what doctors you're working with. Um, And so that's what they loved. It was research-based. There was a success rate. And it wasn't just like, we'll send our kid to this place and we hope it works. It was like, this, there's evidence here, there's research. And I think that's another thing that people get concerned about when there's you're pursuing mental health treatment. It's like, well, how do you know this is going to work? And just like 
the clinical vaccine trials, they do the same thing for mental health treatments. They see if there's evidence um, that that these things work and they change your levels of depression and anxiety and your presenting symptoms and all of these things. So halfway through my freshman year, I flew across the country. I packed up all my stuff with my parents and we got to this like giant brick building right outside of Boston. And I remember we got in there and I was sitting in this room with like 12 clinicians and they asked me, they were like, do you want to be here? And I was like, no, I don't want to be here. I've been told that this is my only option. I've already done DBT. This isn't going to work. Um, so I have to be here, but I don't want to be here. And for the first time ever in my, my treatment journey, they looked at me and they said, so this is a voluntary program. All these girls that you see walking around here are here because they want to be here and they see the wisdom in this treatment. They might emotionally not feel like it might work, but they can understand the rationale and they can have enough hope for themselves to want to change. And unless you can cultivate that, it's not going to work. We can put you through the motions. We can have you learn these skills, but nothing's going to stick. And so I took the night to think about it. I went back to the hotel room and I watched The Bachelor and I remember they were like, if you don't go here, your parents can go somewhere else where they'll sign on a line and you can stay for however long. And that's another unique part of adolescent treatment, which we can dive into. But that kind of scared me. I was like, okay, I want to be here. I want to be in control. And I, for the first time in my entire treatment journey, I trusted other individuals enough to help me and I wanted to get better. I had enough self-love to want a better life for myself, even if I had no idea what that looked like. I was terrified of stumbling blindly toward this idea of not being depressed, but I wanted that life that was out there somewhere that I believed these people could help me get to. And so I was there for 14 weeks and I did so much skills education and group therapy. My parents were flying from San Francisco to Boston every week to learn their own skills and do group therapy and build a relationship with me. And there was just this complete shift of going in suicidally depressed, struggling with depression and anxiety. I remember I had such a problem with not being able to get out of bed that they would lock my door and be like, you just can't go back in there because you're going to sleep all day. Like I, I was struggling with everything. And then I left. And for the first time in two plus years, I wasn't waking up in the morning depressed. I wasn't suicidal. I wasn't having these urges. And so it was a lot of little things. It was making sure I had a routine in place and I was getting up and going places and I was forming these relationships. And rather than having some an option like suicide as a back burner, it wasn't going to be there. I made that decision that that was no longer going to be something that was ever considered. And so I left after 14 weeks and went to a second program for 14 months where I continued to kind of stabilize the work that I'd done and really just maintain these skills that I'd built before I re-entered that initial environment of home, which at first was really emotionally traumatic to me because I was so overly sensitized to all of these interactions. Um, and I, whenever I give recommendations for treatment or people are like, what's helpful, I always go back to that first program because that was what changed everything for me so much. The second program I have mixed feelings about because it's considered to be like part of the troubled teen industry and there's a lot of complex things that go on they're like your custody being signed over and super limited communication and things that I don't think were as helpful to my healing process. But that first program, it, it changed my life. And that, that mindset shift that took place and day after day trying to work towards this life worth living that I was just starting to dream up, um, that was what changed everything for me. 
Oh, there's so much. There's so much. You know, I think the process that you went through, treatment or not, is universal to healing, right? There's yeah. the resistance that you feel. No, I don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. No, I don't want to do this. Then there's the thought of, okay, well, I would like a better future, even though leaving depression seems scary and daunting in That's itself. That's your comfort space. Like That's your it comfort space. It might be terrible, but it's familiar. You know what's going to happen, and it's there. It's like your safety blanket. So to go anywhere from there, it could get worse before it gets better. And so yeah. that was terrifying. Yeah, that's really what held me in my bipolar disorder depression so long was because my body said, okay, well, we got this pain figured out. Like, we know how to we know how to do this shit, yeah. right? Like, you don't go to bed, you don't go to school, you drop out of everything. We know how to do this. But the pain to get better, that's a different type of pain that we in here don't know about. And mm-hmm. so as with everything in life, when you leave a comfort zone for something else, it's difficult. And though it's, a, it's an interesting picture to paint that leaving your depression to heal can be painful as well and and that your ego would want to keep you in the comfort zone of the original pain even though the original pain is going to ruin you it's a very it's amazing what the mind will do to keep you in a pattern that they recognize and can predict and then you said you know once you even thought of a better future that you wanted even though you acknowledged that that was painful to get out of that comfort zone. You mentioned the idea of hope, which is something that I always talk about. It's the moment I got better when my husband told me, you guys have heard this 25 million times. I will repeat it again. (laughs) He looked at me two months into dating and he said, I don't care if you're depressed. If you're depressed and hopeful, I will be in this relationship. If you are depressed and hopeless, I won't be here. And so just that infusion of hope, I didn't change anything. I didn't change my rituals, anything like that. But that infusion of hope allowed me to think about a better way. And then there's the aspect of surrender, Mm -hmm. that this moment that you get to in life where you realize I've been in the driver's seat for this long and it's not working. So I have to humble myself and put my ego aside to recognize that maybe other people know what they're talking about. And that's terrifying. I remember before I even got to treatment, it was the first time I was hospitalized. I went to the pediatrician's office. I was 13 at this point, and they told me to go directly to the emergency room and that I was going to spend some time there because I was just so depressed. I wasn't talking. I was just, I couldn't put any words to what I was experiencing because these feelings were so overwhelming. And I remember I got there and the idea of having a diagnosis of depression or saying that I needed help meant that it was real. It couldn't just be compartmentalized and like, oh, this might be a problem, but not really. When you let people in, it means that it's not going away. It's a real challenge and it's such a challenge that you can't deal with it yourself. And that's a terrifying thing to grapple with. And People know what they're doing. Like you said, these are people that have gone to school for decades to support you and and use evidence-based treatments and compassion and help you through this and be in your corner, even though you're the one fighting the battle. And so it's it's terrifying, but it, it it's downhill from that point of first asking for help and accepting that it's bigger than you because you have more individuals on your side rooting for you and you have a whole village that can pull from their experiences and knowledge to help you in your treatment. Your experience with treatment, I think, was a lot different than my experience with the treatment that I had in many ways, which was 
probably because it was not concentrated. It was all over the place. It was random. It was outpatient programs when, you know, they locked me up once. It was really I I was trying to fumble through, which I think is why it took me so many years yeah. to to figure it out. But yeah, you know, for me, I think a lot of the times, which is probably my ego coming through and, and wanting to protect myself from getting help. A lot of the times I would look at the people and be like, how do you know? How do mm -hmm. you know what you're talking about? You read mm -hmm. it in a textbook. Like, have you lived with this before? And yeah. I and that was me just questioning authority, which I always do, which is probably a weakness of mine at that point. But the, the reason I wanted you to tell your story is because it's a story that I've never heard. I've never met anybody with a mental health problem that I can relate to and felt that I can see myself so much in your story and know that there was a place where you went to that young, which is so remarkable in my opinion. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about where you're at today because Obviously, the young lady that is standing in front of me or is zooming in front of me <laughs> is very different from the other one that the, the the younger Sadie that was really struggling and feeling that intense overwhelm when you healed and when you came back into life, into your home, your your house. How old were you at that point? I like was like 16 and a half. I was a week out of starting junior year. Okay, so you were 16 and a half. You're, you said 18 now. You're mm -hmm. 18. So uh, that rate of healing is so accelerated. So I want to talk about what today looks like for you. Mm -hmm. Because as someone with a mental illness, there's always times for me, which I feel like I did my most healing within the last year and a half to really be strong. Mm -hmm. There's moments when the overwhelming feeling of depression, anxiety does come over me. And I have to remind myself of who I am, what I've learned, where my strength is, where my tools are, etc. So I think that sometimes there's this misconception, unless this is totally not your experience, and please correct me if I'm wrong with this. There's a misconception that sometimes when you heal from your mental illness, that your mental health journey is then smooth sailing. When really for me, it's a constant upkeep and management. It's a constant prioritizing myself. It's constantly checking in with my beliefs. What are my thought patterns saying? Am I meditating? Am I taking time for myself? So what does your mental health look like today? And what happens if you do feel a pang of depression? Yeah, I think like everything in life, it's 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 a muscle that you're building. Those first days, every single morning, I was waking up and telling myself, okay, suicide is not an option for today. Um, I am going to get out of bed and I'm going to go to this therapy group. And it was overwhelming feelings of still depression and anxiety and doing the opposite of what my emotions were telling me to do and leaning on others intensively for support. I remember at residential, which was the program in Boston, I loved therapy so much. Just like talking about what I was going through, having that person, my therapist would like reinforce me for getting out of bed by giving me like five therapy sessions a week. Like no one else was volunteering for this, but like just being able to lean on people for support, which I hadn't done before was a game changer. So early days, it's a struggle. Every single moment, you're just pushing yourself to do what your emotions are telling you not to do. And I think with time, it gets a lot easier. That idea of, for me, it was suicide being on the back burner. It's just so far away now that I'm no longer every morning waking up and saying, this is not an option. And so it's, it's, it's time, it's building a muscle. And I completely do agree with you that I um, 
still feel moments of depression and that mental health is all about maintaining things. And I remember in treatment, someone told me that if you're not progressing, you're digressing. And I think that's so true because if you're not working towards a betterment of your mental health, it's really easy to revert back to these old patterns that I don't know about you, but served me. Well, I was super ineffective with self-harming and suicidal ideation and being in and out of the hospital. That got me connection and care and love from my parents and people showing concern. So there's a reason why we develop- Oh yeah, there we yeah, go. That's we develop these p- behaviors for a reason. And that was me. To, mm-hmm. That was me. I got so much fucking attention yeah. for being depressed. My doctors so got to a point where they were like, you cannot come visit her in the hospital. Like, this, she's just going to keep coming back here. And Dude, so, Sadie, real quick. When yes. I was an inpatient, my dad brought me, like, high-end meals. Every oh, no. Single meal. Me too. Every They would come and bring me takeout for every single yeah, I meal. I got sushi. I, I had got, groceries oh, yeah. in the fridge. The people were like... Who is this girl? Like, this is not what this is about. I had, like, Girl Scout yeah. cookies brought in. I had my teachers visiting me. My friend came. My siblings came to visit. I, it was a disaster. Like, yeah. it, that behavior was, like, I loved that. That was, like, this is care. This is concern. People can see what I'm feeling is real. So, yeah, going back to we all experience our mental health moments, we have to continue to move in the direction that we want to, even though that's not always clear. And so for me now, I go back to the basic things that I worked on in residential, and that was, first of all, sleep. Like, that was such a big problem for me. I was constantly struggling with insomnia. For me, I connected going to sleep with waking up and feeling depressed. So if I just avoided going to sleep, I didn't have to wake up and feel that feeling of living this life that I hated so much. And so... I avoided it. I would go like days without sleeping. Just I am a very emotionally avoidant person. And so that was something that I just thrived on was just not not sleeping. And it was terrible. It made my mental health so much worse. And so for me, sleep is number one. I'm making sure that I'm getting enough sleep. I'm keeping it consistent. The other things are connection, having relationships that fuel me, even if um, sometimes my relationships with my parents, I'm like, this is like not helping me. Like this is really making me um, feel really angry or alone. And so I'll lean more on my friends. And so having that idea of a family that you've cultivated for yourself and relationships that, that make you feel good, regardless of who those people are, having things to do, whether that's school or work or the podcast, which I'm really passionate about is huge. Having that sense of mastery and a purpose. Um, and then just really every single day doing things that that bring me joy and accumulating those positives so that when I do have those moments of lows, it's not that I can go back to the headspace of everything sucks. I have nothing going for me because I have all of these amazing things that I've accumulated and built for myself. And so and the last thing that I'll mention as far as feeling moments of depression, the huge shift that's taken place with this ability to cope and be effective is that when I feel depressed, it's no longer going to be a six-month period until I feel anything different. I can go to sleep that night and wake up the morning and feel okay. So I, like you said, um, talking about impermanence, the quote that I lean on is, life is impermanent and that impermanence will be on your side. These emotions don't last and that's so much more true when you're you're working towards this this goal of having a healthy, balanced form of mental health. So that depression might be there and it's serving a purpose. It's kind of kicking you in the butt for whatever is not going well in your life, but it's not going to last. And when you've got gotten good at creating ways in your life that bring you joy and improve your mental health, the, the period that it lasts for is, is a lot less significant than it is when you have nothing that you've you've built for yourself. 
can you talk like this to your friends or are they just <laughs> confused? It's it's funny. It's like I, I talk to my parents one way. I talk to my friends one way. The podcast is a whole other world. It's like I think if I talk to any of my friends and I was like, yes, like all of these different belief systems, they'd be like, no, this is too serious. This is too much. Um, but I, I love it. I'm so passionate about it. And so that's why I love doing the podcast is because I can just kind of geek out on all that kind of stuff and have these amazing discussions. Um, but no, it's definitely a compartmentalized part that I wouldn't push on everyone because I know that's not why I build those relationships. I now mm-hmm. build my friendships to build me up and, and laugh with and have a shoulder to cry on and not to be my therapist and have these intense mental health discussions. Like I, you maybe would have in the past. The yeah, the boundaries, the wisdom, the understanding that different relationships are for different things that you can't dump this kind of conversation on your best friend the same way you mm-hmm. can't dump the relationship you have with your best friend and your podcast and that kind of different I suppose facets of yourself. What mm-hmm. you know, it's obviously very emotional with my parents when yeah. they see something that I do that's successful or they recognize and look back at where I used to be and see where I am now because there were so many times when my dad would just cry because he didn't know if I was ever going to make something of myself if I was ever going to be safe in my emotions etc you know especially my husband being in a relationship while going through a mental illness is a Mm -hmm. whole other intense ball game so seeing you now what do your parents think feel and say so it's it's different emotions for sure. There's so much pride, a hundred percent, for for what I've done and the the shifts that I've made. Um, my mom, she like when I first started the podcast, she would not go within like a six mile radius of it. She wouldn't listen to it. She wouldn't talk about it. It was like emotionally traumatic for her to relive these moments because it just came with so much pain and sadness to see your you see your kids suffering and not know how to help them. Now she'll listen to the podcast sometimes and she'll talk about it, which is fun. My dad was the one that that suggested the podcast, and when I was first at that program in Boston, this was so bad. He was like, Sadie, you've got to start a podcast like think about how powerful this story will be like so many people struggle with mental health I'll send you a recorder it'll be great and the doctors were like uh sir this is totally against HIPAA she cannot have a recording device in this mental hospital he was like but it's for a podcast and I was like no so like a year later I was like okay maybe he's on to something but he's always been very supportive and I think for me like with that relationship with them there's still challenges and I still struggle with the idea that I'll never be good enough and so while there's all of these things where I'm like this is crazy that four years ago I was in and out of the hospital or being I was still at a residential program um three years ago um there's still moments where they're like Sadie like come on and I'm like so there's 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 balance and everything and so with school they're like come on like let's get these grades up let's go and there's like this is really amazing and this is really cool and when I had my high school graduation last week my mom was like this wasn't really that exciting because I feel like you're already doing so many things that are beyond a high schooler. Like we're excited for you to graduate college because that feels like what you're already doing with the podcast and all of these different things. You're so into your passions and, and working on these things that this is just like you're getting the diploma for the purpose of it. It's not like this is what I was working towards, but yeah. Mm, okay. So before we wrap up, I would love you to give one tip to somebody who might be listening, who is struggling, what's something that you would say to them, something you would encourage them? It could be a positive affirmation. It could be an action tool. It can be a mindset shift. What's one thing that's really on your heart 
um, when you hear about someone who is suffering with their mental health that you would love to guide them with? Yeah, there are so many different things. I will say to educate yourself on what your life can look like. We get really stuck in our own heads and believe that our emotional experiences rule everything. Like how I am feeling must be the only way that life can exist. And that is so not true. If I had taken the time to kind of get out of my own head and be like, I can read these books about how I can shift my mindset and shift my behaviors and create these routines. And that was another reason why I started the podcast because I didn't hear a lot of teenagers being like, I did this myself and I got better. And so I wanted to create that narrative. But if you can educate yourself on what your life can look like, not depressed or not anxious or not struggling, I think that's extremely powerful. It's motivating. You have something to work towards and you get out of your own headspace of this is what my life looks like and I'm confined here and things aren't going to change. And so it's a small shift to make. Maybe it's being on Pinterest, it's listening to podcasts, it's reading books, but it's it's huge and it gives you that hope that you were talking about. It gives you something to work towards and I really do believe that your thoughts, your beliefs, and your behaviors will change as a result as you're working towards those things. You're amazing. I could <laughs> I could truly rave about you for forever and just listening to you talk it, I really am in such total awe of how much radical responsibility you've taken over your emotional landscape over the cards you've been dealt and then not only taken that kind of personal power into your own hands over your own life, but to then move forward, start a podcast and help other people through it is so admirable. And I look up to you. I relate to you so much. Can you please let everybody know, sisters, you should definitely go um, consume all things Sadie. Can you let them know? Uh, about your podcast and where to follow you? Of course. So my podcast is called She Persisted. Um, and you can find all of the links for everything at shepersistedpodcast.com. But to give you some more details, my Instagram is at shepersistedpodcast. My TikTok is the same handle. Um, and you can listen everywhere. You can listen on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, all the places. And you can listen to Scout on my podcast as well. Yay. I'll have to link <laughs> that um, episode in the show notes. Everyone can go hear me on your podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much, love. And you can find me sisters at Scout Sobel. And I was going to plug Mads, but she's not on this fucking episode. <laughs> so I'm just going to plug myself. <laughs> love you sisters and have a beautiful day. Hey there, I'm Dr. Tracy Dalgleish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. If there's one thing I know from both my personal and clinical experience, it's that we are really good at comparing ourselves to others. We tend to get stuck in the unhelpful narratives that play on repeat in our minds, and we struggle to set boundaries and create healthy love. Each week, I bring you clinical knowledge and evidence-based research, experiences of sitting in the therapist chair, and being a wife, mother, and business owner to talk about everyday issues we all face to help you you change the dialogue in your life. Tune in every Thursday to I'm Not Your Shrink wherever you listen to podcasts. While I'm not your shrink, I am still human and I'm excited for us to be in our vulnerability and humanness together.